People grow cannabis for all sorts of reasons and in all sorts of different ways. Most licensed commercial outfits are looking for consistency where every seed expresses itself in the same way. Many home growers are looking for that too. But also, most cannabis breeders and many home growers pop cannabis seeds to find variety, atypical plant morphology, and rare expressions of cannabis plants. In our complex cannabis scene, some are trying to sift a line down to one plant type, while other folks are trying to open up the wild cannabis genome to find the outer edges. Both are fabulous and important. It is the way. Today's episode sits in the middle of these two worlds. S1 seed types are about catching the lightning in the bottle for one popular plant variety, but also when looking at the snapshot of a gene pool, being excited about everything that is possible in that one small gene pool, especially the unexpected stuff. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we are giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, our friends at Magical Butter are awarding our winner a fantastic four-pack gummy bundle, including a Magical Butter countertop extraction machine, filter press, a decar box, gummy mixes, and gummy molds too. A $432 value. Sign up for the Magical Butter newsletter now at MagicalButter.com. And to win, go to ShapingFire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guests today are Caleb Inspecta and Ryan Lee. Ryan Lee is a professional cannabis researcher and plant breeder specializing in cultivar design and the inheritance of the therapeutic compounds in cannabis. His background training is in neuroscience and studying the endocannabinoid system with a strong focus on genetics. His post-grad work at the University of British Columbia was in plant breeding and biotechnology. Ryan is founder of Chimera Genetic Resource Management and the Chemovar Corporation. Chimera is essentially a seed bank and a cannabis germplasm firm operating in Europe for nearly 20 years. Chemovar Corporation is based in Canada and focuses on breeding specialty cannabis varieties, laboratory analytics, cultivation consulting, cultivar selection, licensing, and importation for licensed producers. You can score seeds from his breeding projects via Instagram at Breeding Cannabis. Ryan recently appeared on Shaping Fire episode 64 about feminized seeds and female-only breeding. Episode 74 about tissue culture and micropropagation, too. Caleb Inspecta is founder and breeder at CSI Humboldt. Caleb and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family has cultivated exceptional sensimia in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Caleb reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways. Caleb's seeds are available at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb also appears on Shaping Fire episode 49 about feminized cannabis seeds. Today, we're going to talk about S1 seeds, what they are, their advantages and challenges, and a bit on how to make them. Welcome to the show, fellas. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. 
Right on. So let's get right into it. Let's start by digging into what an S1 is to get us all on the same page. Um, let's start with you, Ryan. How about you give us an explanation from the scientific perspective of what an S1 is? Okay, so an S1 is really a designation or a label that we give to a generation of plants. Um, S1 seeds come from the mating of one particular plant to itself. And the resulting generation of seeds is what we called S1 or self one generation. Um, so that's really, that, that's really what we mean when we say S1s. We're referring to a population that is created through mating one particular plant to itself with no outside genetic influence. So when we say mating it to itself, or um, we're talking about like female only breeding where we're going to cause male flowers on that same plant. And so um, it is self-pollinating. Yeah, yeah. We, we create a self-fertilization event as, you know, I, th I think people are probably going to want to go back and listen to the other um, episode that we did on S1s to kind of get a bit of a basis. Um, th there's different ways to do it. Sometimes you'll take two cuttings of the same plant and one plant will be treated with a hormone blocker to induce male flowers on an otherwise female plant. Um, and so we actually have two, two individual specimens, but genetically they're the same plant. One of them we treat with a hormone uh, recipe that induces the formation of male flowers on that particular female genetic plant. And those, those male flowers are able to produce pollen. And then we use the pollen from that plant to transfer to the female version of that same clone, the, the, the untreated version, the plant that we didn't put any hormones on. It will naturally develop female flowers. And when we bring the pollen from the male version of that plant or the male, the staminate version, I guess we should call it, of that plant and we fertilize the pistolate version, we end up with a generation of seed that is created only from the genetic type of that one individual. Right on. So um, we will talk more about the attributes of these S1 seeds in a moment. But Caleb, um, another way to focus on what is an S1 other than just talking about it from a genetic perspective is to focus on why we bother to make them. And, um, you know, you're the most prolific maker of S1s that I'm aware of in the cannabis scene. Um, why do you make S1s? Why are these attracted, attractive to you to produce and share with the community? I think first uh, is preservation. I mean, it's, uh, it's difficult keeping you know, clones alive for years and years and years. I mean, you know, I've had clones for certain individuals for over 20 years, but you know, I mean, it's, it's not fun taking care of a huge library of clones, especially for that long. And so preservation is, you know, always, uh, the, the main target. Um, and then, uh, basically, uh, breeding stock, um, I personally like to breed with S1 selections um, and then, you know, move on to S2s, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you can, you can really narrow down certain traits 
by utilizing the S1 seeds um, to, you know, make new, more stable hybrids. So that's uh, probably the two main reasons that I like to create them. You know, being one of the few folks who are who are putting S1s, especially S1s often, into the, the market, um, I can imagine that you're used to answering the question like, what's an S1? Because most seed buyers are comfortable with seeing F1, F2, F3, e- even if they might not be F3s. Um, you know, people, people are at least aware of that, that um, you know, that notation. But S1s is, is still pretty unfamiliar to most folks. When you, um, you know, when you are at a table or when you are explaining it to somebody, do you find that people are skittish of it just because it's got an atypical notation? Or, um, or do you find that people are pretty, pretty easy to, you know, just pick up S1s because they like the, the description of the cross? Well, I think this is a, a topic we'll be getting to here um, shortly. Uh, a lot of people, you know, of course, think an S1, you know, is is more or less the same as, you know, the plant it's coming from. But uh, we'll, we'll touch on that, I'm sure, in a little bit. Um, so people tend to want those S1s over hybrids because... They're looking for a pure, you know, representation of, you know, the cut they're getting. And that's not always the case of, you know, what they're going to get from S1s. So it sounds like the people who come to you and they're holding these seeds, they pretty much fall into two categories. People who know what S1s are, are excited to get them because they're special and they, they put breeding power in their hands. And then people who don't know what S1s are that may be a little more unsure because they want seeds that are going to work for them and they only know what F1s are. So, so there's a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, concierge services or you need to provide them once you figure out what kind of a, you know, cultivator they are. Right. Right. I, I, I think most, most of the people who, you know, come come to me already have a fairly decent idea of what they're looking for, what they're trying to get. Not all, but definitely most, it seems. Mm-hmm. So I think we have a, or can I, if I could just jump in here, I think we have a real interesting thing in the cannabis seed market. You know, when you go and buy flower seeds or uh, vegetable seeds, you can expect that you're buying the seeds and they, when you grow them, they're all going to look the same, and they're all going to look like the plant on the front of the package. Um, and that just doesn't happen in cannabis, partly because of the the history of hybridization that we've really gone through in the past 30, 40 years with this plant, but also partly because of the plant's natural mating cycle. You know, I, I, I get people to kind of understand, I try to get people to understand that cannabis is very, the mating system of cannabis is very much like the mating system of humans. Okay, and so if you look at any given human family, you have a male that, that has um, sexual relations with a, with a female, and that creates a generation of offspring. Now, 
if you look around the world and we we look at this practice all over the world we are pretty sure you know we 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 can understand pretty conclusively that the family that's created from the mom and the dad might look like the mom and the dad but they're not reproductions of either the mom or the dad right and and so when we compare that practice to the way that we you know breed plants for agriculture the expectation is, is when you cross two plants together that all of the plants will come up looking the same, right? And so I think that there's a lot of confusion in this. Well, I know there's a lot of confusion in the seed market. And there's a, a certain percentage of people that even if they understand that an S1 is the product of one clone self-fertilizing or self -fertilizing and producing seeds, people believe that by crossing the same clone to itself, that all of the plants are going to end up looking like that same plant that same clone and that's just completely wrong that's a total fallacy and so if, if you're buying you know legend og seeds from caleb and you think that all the plants are going to end up looking and smelling like the legend og you're really mistaken right and so when we talk about when caleb talks about preservation i think it's important to clarify that when you breed when you when you create an s1 seed yes the entire generation as a collection has all of the traits within that generation that were present in the parent plant but the individual plants in that population may or may not have that trait that those traits um and that's just a simple reality of the way that meiosis and recombination works you're, you're not always going to get all the traits when we have we have traits that um so this is what's called a segregating generation and people can look that up but a segregating generation is essentially a generation of plant breeding where traits recombine with each other and i think the expectation of a lot of people is that when they see seeds that come from a plant that look like a legend sorry legend og that all of the plants will be clones of that legend og plant um and so if you're buying, say, uh, I don't know the package size that Caleb sells his S1s in, but if you're buying, you know, seeds of, say, five S1 seeds and you're expecting to see a, a plant that looks like the parent, in all ways, you're probably going to be miss. You're, you're probably not going to find what you're looking for. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll leave it at there. We can expand on that as we go through. Right on. So... Um... Uh, uh, we're going to talk more about those attributes of S1 seeds in just a moment, but I'm, I, I want to do it now, but I'm not going to take that bait because I want to ask about what you said at the beginning of, of this, where you were comparing S1 seeds and the expectations of growers um, to the, uh, you know, to the to commercial ornamental agriculture market. And I'm curious, um, you know, there, there are so many expectations and, and even vocabulary that we use in the cannabis scene that seems absurd to the more uh, formalized and established agriculture market. Does the rest of the ag market use S1 seeds or are those so R&D that those are kind of like a middle step before you get to the seeds that you release to the public in the regular ag market? Like, like are we people in cannabis, some of the only folks that are messing around with S1 seeds at the retail level? Ryan. It's an interesting, yeah. it's an interesting question. And 
I, I not knowing enough of the other the way other plants operate or the markets for other plant plants operate. I can't really answer conclusively. I can tell you for sure, like in the agricultural market, if you're buying like tomato seed or like rye or wheat or like some type of grain that you're planting by the thousand acres, they're not producing them by self-seed. In that case, the self-seed is more of a, a step, um, like a breeding step that probably wouldn't be released commercially. But, you know, kind of touching upon what we had just said about, you know, selling five packs or 10 packs of S1 seed, I really see Caleb doing something as a service to the, to the industry. I personally don't consider S1 seeds or the production of S1 seeds as like a real breeding project that, that we would, that like a a plant breeder would necessarily take a huge amount of pride in. Like in a a lot of cases, what we're doing is getting a plant from the marketplace or a, a plant that the community has decided is valuable and you know that happens as these the elite clones call them raised like they kind of they're kind of like the the cream of the crop right like everybody has say 10 really great plants but the best ones get shared and then when they get shared and shared again the ones that remain and continue to be shared are really the best of the best right and so if Caleb acquires one of those plants and he decides to make S1 seeds he's really not doing a lot of actual breeding work but he's providing a service to the community in allowing the reproduction and, and like he said, the preservation of that plant in a seed form. Now, I would argue, you know, at again, like at five seeds in a pack, you're not really doing a huge service to the community. But I also think that like if if someone is really serious about a seed line and they truly want to like say I want to, say I don't have legend seed in my in my stable and I want to buy legend OG seeds from Caleb or some other self that he's created that I don't have in my stable. Personally, when I grow self seeds, I really don't look at like less than 50. Um, because like I said, the, the traits that we see in the parents in some plants, they disappear in kind of like an either or fashion. And, and you might have a valuable trait in one of the offspring, but it might be missing another valuable trait. And so, for example, let's talk again, Legend OG. Legend OG has got a, it's a hybrid of two plants. It's got a relatively interesting scent profile on one side of the parentage, and that, that scent is dominant. But the other side of the parentage contributed like a not very desirable smell. So when you, when you shuffle those genes and you grow it the next generation... 75% of them are going to have the trait that you want, that that delicious smell. But 25% of the plants are not going to have that. Um, and that's what we've only looked at one trait, right? And so when we factor in, like, say, let's say that there's a, a yield characteristic or, or uh, a, a powdery mildew resistance characteristic that is recessive. And it only occurs in 25% of the plants when, when it's bred. So now you have to multiply that 25% probability by the 75% of the plants that have the smell profile. And you can see that out of like, you know, those four plants that we already started with, we're already down to like one potential plant out of four that is going to have the two traits that we're really looking at, that we're really interested in following or breeding for. Um, And so like part of the S1 growing process is really, like you said, Shango, it's this is part of the work that's done behind the scenes and really doesn't usually make it to the market in other crop species. Um, 
because it's really like we're kind of working out the traits and trying to get them all aligned in a way that when we release them to the public, the public gets exactly what they want. And so, you know, my argument is that Caleb's really doing a, a service to the community by taking some of these held, uh, tightly held plants, making segregating generations of the genetics in those plants, in other words, making self-seeds from those plants, and then sharing those far and wide, right? Because that kind of democratizes the breeding process and opens up, I would say, kind of the some of the elite germplasm that exists in the species, and it distributes it around the community. And I think that that's probably... Um, quite a different mentality that, that happens in other, in other crop species. So, you know, I look at self, self selling self seeds as both as the same, same thing. You're kind of get, you're kind of selling seeds that are like a relatively high dollar value. Um, but it didn't have a ton of work that went into it. But on the flip side, you're really offering something to the community that they couldn't get elsewhere. Um, and so I think that it's fair that if somebody really wanted to work a seed line and say Caleb is selling 10 seeds for a hundred bucks, you know, if you want to grow 50 seeds, I, I would come and buy five packs of those seeds and grow them all together. Right. Because then, then like we were talking about that preservation step that exists within the entire S one population, you have like a relatively decent sized snapshot of, of that variation within 50 seeds better if you have a hundred seeds, but 50 is certainly much, much better than five seeds. Right. Um, so a little bit rambly, but I don't know if that, that no, not, not rambly at all. And I actually really like what you said about the democratization of, of these germplasms, these genetics, um, because it is true. Like nobody can argue that Caleb has got plants that um, have been desired by breeders for years, and uh, I'll probably misquote you, Caleb. So I'm sorry in advance, but um, like I, you know, I've heard you talk on uh, the last time you were on Shaping Fire. Uh, I believe you were talking about the uh, old family purple Kush that has been in your family for. I think we could actually literally say generations, um, and and that it's like this old particular purple Kush cut that you know has these attributes that people have, you know, not only loved as far as a flower that people wanted to, to smoke, but also it had attributes that people wanted to use as, um, you know, solid breeding stock. And, you know, almost nobody has set up a situation where you have, where you're able to keep such a library and, you know, there are all sorts of uh, new breeders and hell, even old breeders that just don't have really awesome access to genetics who are all like, I want, I want to grow the, I want to breed the best thing that I can breed too. You know, I would love to get my, you know, hands on, you know, 25, 30 year old or longer purple kush so that I can, you know, breed it to the cool thing that I've made. And, and you're taking the care to actually actually, you know, um, uh, you know, like kind of like an archivist to, you know, make it into seeds, capture the variety of the genetics and then put it out there. So, so all that upsets, sets up for this question for you, Caleb, is that, you know, what, um, what, uh, Ryan suggested that, you know, 
you're doing a lot more archiving than breeding. And I kind of thought in my head, I'm like, I'm like, I bet you there's a lot of selection in there that you're not actually trying to add anything to it, but maybe you're, you're selecting which plants to run with. So, so I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of put this together in one messy question and just drop it on your lap, dude, <laughs> which <laughs> is, um, you know, how do you see the, the work that, that you're doing in S1? ones like this like how much of it is you found this particular cut in the scene and you know you verified it and you want to capture its potential for a lot of people and therefore you make the s1s or are you um actually uh you know like um i'll just say forbidden fruit i don't know if this is true or not but it's just what i'm going to use for the example where like maybe you found a few forbidden fruits that you liked and then and then back cross them into each other to kind of make a you know a a csi humble version of um forbidden fruit and then and then you're making that an s1 because in your mind it is a perfected forbidden fruit so that, my friend, is my messy question. <laughs> well, first off, I, I definitely 100% agree with Ryan. Um, I've always looked at making S1s as, as far as the, the retail level goes, as just a service. I don't pretend I'm any kind of breeder on that. It's just providing a service. Now, realistically, I make the S1s for me. I, I make them one to preserve, you know, make sure you have something in the fridge freezer, you know, for a later date. Um, but also, you know, uh, the S ones to me are a first step, uh, in any type of, you know, feminized breeding pro project program for me. And, you know, breeding or making S ones isn't, you know, like Ryan said, it's not breeding. It's just, you know, making that first step and what what i like to do you know past s ones is you know like he said you know i i want to grow out at least a hundred of them if i can and select my favorites out of there and then i can go a bunch of different ways i can make pure s2s where i select one cut and pollinate it you know with itself or i can take you know a couple few different sister cuts and uh you know um, cross them together. I can always back cross to the mom, but with some of those S ones, but in my experience, um, I don't think that really produces what I'm, you know, genuinely looking for. Um, so, and then that ties kind of into that, you know, for forbidden fruit example, you know, you, you made, I could, you know, make S ones of forbidden fruit, I could grow out a hundred of them, pick my favorites, breed them together this way, that way, the other, and make something that's no longer just, you know, the forbidden fruit. It's, you know, my bread selected, you know, my, my version of forbidden fruit, you know, and S1s are so variable that you, you, you can give it to, you know, a dozen different breeders and each one will end up with a different, you know, a different thing at the finish line. So, um, I'm not sure if that 
that touched yeah, entirely. It, it did. And I'd like you to take it a step further. I'm, I'm taking mm-hmm. a little guess that this is of the same variety, but would you tell the story of Lemon Tree Lemon Party? Oh, <laughs> well, okay. So, um, I originally got, uh, a lemon tree cut and I grew it out and I was like, you know, I don't think this is lemon tree. So I did a bit of research on it and I found out that it had zero, the attributes of, well, not zero. I won't say zero because it had that, you know, extremely pungent lemon tree type smell, but the plant didn't grow anything like lemon tree. And so, um, I kind of tracked down, uh, what that cut was. And then I also tracked down, uh, the original lemon tree cut. And so I acquired the lemon tree cut and grew it out and, yeah, it's a completely different plant. So I had this original, uh, the the first lemon tree cut I had gotten, but you, you don't want to call it lemon tree because it's not the lemon tree. So, you know, we, we kind of changed its name to lemon party. Um, you know, it, cause on its own, it's a, it's a good cut. And, um, I always kind of looked at it as a hybrid of lemon tree, um, but it could be either an S one of lemon tree, um, or, or a hybrid. So, um, right on. That is not at all the story that I thought it was going to be, but I'm glad I asked you anyway, because <laughs> it, it was still a good story, but that I thought it was going to be an S one story, but, um, it is, is more like receiving a cut and it's, it's not the one you thought it was, you know, this is probably a good place to ask you, uh, Caleb, you know, I know that you are hardcore into searching out the actual cut, right. Um, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that, that you've got a verified lineage, accurate cut is, is an, of an ultimate priority to you and which makes sense since you mm-hmm. are a bit of an archivist and you want to preserve these particular things um uh i can imagine that you run into times like you just described where you really want it to be the right cut the person told you it was the right cut the evidence is looking like it very well could be the right cut but then when you grow it it ain't the right cut and like kind of like how do you struggle with that to like know if you want to go forward with this being the cut or not Right, right. I I mean, I always try to get, you know, cuts as close to the original source as I can, um, if not just the original source. Um, But yeah, uh, if if you can't, then yeah, uh, it it gets a little tricky sometimes. Uh, And uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say just with, you know, like with the lemon party, um, if the cut, you know, stands alone and on its own merits, then, then definitely worth keeping, you know, but if it doesn't and it doesn't, well, it doesn't line up with what the cut is or should be that you were looking for. Yeah. Those kind of need to just get filtered out of the gene pool. Yeah. Right on. Um, you know, do you, when you go to original sources for these cuts, do you find that like, you know, 
you've been doing this long enough, you're OG enough, people know you enough where um, the sources of the cut, like the, the original breeder or finder, depending on the nature of the cut, that they're all like, oh yeah, man, like I'm happy to provide it to you so you know it's the actual thing. Or do you find that like people really want to hold that more often than not, and they're happy that people are selling cuts that aren't actually the right thing because it creates artificial um, um, scarcity for their original cut? Or do you just have so much kick-ass stuff to trade that you always have something they want and people always give up the cut? I think you could say all the above because uh, <laughs> no two, no two scenarios are the same. Um, so pretty much every, every different scenario you described. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely ones that can fall into each one. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, you know, the, the, the scarcity one where people start trading one cut uh, even though it's not the right cut, you know, or the original cut as the same type of name. I mean, uh, a, a perfect, well, not a perfect example, but an example, like there was originally a wedding cake around the Bay area and, you know, it circulated for a couple few years, whatever. And then, uh, the jungle boys ran some of, you know, just blazons, uh, hybrid, I think it was the Cushman's or something like that. Uh, and they named their keeper cut wedding cake. And so this cut of wedding cake that had circulated the Bay area and beyond, you know, all of a sudden it's not the popular wedding cake because, you know, the, the wedding cake from the jungle boys and Jade Beasy, you know, got circulated in mass and now all of a sudden, that's the most popular wedding cake, and it's not even the original wedding cake. So what do you do in that kind of scenario where you've had wedding cake for, you know, 10 or 12 years, and yet uh, there's a brand new wedding cake that's not even the same cake, you know? Yeah, it's really strange in that case, the influence of the marketing aspect on on how the lineage will be taught you know what do they say the the winners write the history right mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and it's kind of like that oh yeah big time yeah so so ryan i want to um uh talk about the inherent weaknesses that there may be in s1s right before we go to break here and when we come back for set two we're gonna we're gonna go more in depth into the uh genetic variety that's held within a group of s1 seeds i am more focused on like as a breeder or as a grower are there any inherent weaknesses to s1s um that makes them uh, less than desirable, and it could just be that the answer is no, because we'll we're, we'll talk more about um, intersex seeds and, and things like that in the second set. But are there any, um, you know, since since this first set is kind of like getting people familiar with S ones, are there any immediately uh, red red flags to S ones that you would that you would flag as a geneticist? 
because mostly what we've said so far are that S1s are pretty kick-ass and they meet a very particular need of breeders and then, you know, nerdy people like me that just like to see different expressions of a plant. But but you are uniquely aware of what's under the hood of an S1. And and if there's any if there's anything we want to say that is dangerous about an S1, I would like to pull it out right now. Yeah, another interesting question. I, I don't think that there I mean, I don't think that we can look at all S1 seeds and say these seeds are going to have this set of problems. Um, so you really have to take it on a case by case basis. Again, S1 making S1s, sorry, crossing a plant to itself is the most severe form of inbreeding that we can do in any in any species. Um, you know, part of what keeps us safe as humans is, is the fact that we have to have sex with a member of the opposite, um, of the opposite sex in order to have offspring. Um, and that process in just because we've evolved to have males and females, that process, it kind of prevents inbreeding, or at least it's, it's, um, a mating system that's designed. And one of the, one of the consequences is that it inhibits in breeding because we're always breeding to someone else. This is the opposite. What we're doing here is the exact opposite and we're reducing it. We're removing any genetic contribution from any other individual. And then we're subjecting that one, the, the genetic variation that exists within that one individual, we're subjecting that tiny little gene pool to a step of inbreeding that by definition removes 25% of the variation in any subsequent individual. And so it's a very, um, it's a very severe form of inbreeding. And therefore, if the parent that we used in that inbreeding step has any genetic weaknesses, those genetic weaknesses are going to express themselves in the S1 generation. Um, it's kind of like doubling, it's kind of like doubling down on one thing. It's like, okay, you know, you're, you're putting all your chips on this one plant. You know, you, you actually couldn't have said it better. And I've never actually thought of it in those terms, but it really is, it it really is genetic doubling down. We've identified, and, and, you know, in a, in a sense, Shango, what we're trying to do is double down on any given trait, like, you know, using the legend OG, you know, this individual we were talking about before that, that plant's got a spike of linalool. That's kind of, it's, it's, it's much higher than your normal OG or gassy type plant. And so that gives it like a little bit of an interesting kick. And so by selfing it, or by selfing that individual and removing any genetic combination or contribution from any other plant, we're hoping that in the next off in the next generation, we might find an individual that has even higher levels of linalool. Right. And, and that's kind of what you're doing with an S1 is like when you have a, r- a rare trait, you know, say it's like something visual that everybody can understand. Say you get a plant with these bright fuchsia pistols and no other plant, even in the immediate family, like none of the brothers or none of the sisters of that family have these same, um, these same pink pistols. If you're trying to, to, if you, if you like that trait and you say, hey, I want all of my plants in the next generation to have pink pistols, the question becomes, which plant do I hybridize the pink pistol plant with 
in order for all the plants in the next generation to produce pink pistols, right? And it, it may sound kind of trite, but the obvious answer is you want to breed it with a plant that also has pink pistols, right? And so if there are no other pink pistol plants within that population, the most likely plant to contribute that same genetic trait is that very plant itself, right? And so what we're hoping is that by mating the plant itself to itself, that all of the plants in the next generation are going to have that trait. And if they don't all have that trait, at least we can start making some um, conclusions or hypotheses about how that trait is inherited based on the representation of that trait in the next generation. Right. Um, so I kind of got away from inherent weaknesses, but I think it's just to understand that the weaknesses that exist in a potential S1 seed lot are really a result of the technique, the breeding technique. And it's, there's not something that we can say all S1 seeds are going to have these specific set of problems because the specific set of problems that might arise are, are a result of what is hidden in the genetic background of the plants that we're mating. Um, it kind of reminds me of leveraged investing, like whether it be like stocks or bitcoins or whatever, where, where, you know, when things go good, because you're leveraged, they go really, really good. And when things go bad, because you're leveraged, they go really, really bad because there is like an exponential doubling down on whatever that thing is. Same thing in this case, where if the breeder has done their work and, um, you know, they're using a, a good cut to begin with. Um, it can become a great cut because you are breeding that plant to itself and doubling down on those attributes. But if it's a, if it's a messy lineage and it doesn't go well, well, it's, it's just going to be a fricking wreck. Um, well, it's not, it's not necessarily going to be a fricking wreck, right? The, po the population as a whole might be a frickin' wreck, but we might find those one or two or three individuals that are, you know, like it, in plant breeding, is it's all about raising the mean level of performance of the plant on any set of traits over generations, right? And so if we've got a plant that say, let's call it an eight and a half on a scale of 10, and we breed it, we make S1s of it, and then like... Uh, we grow a hundred of the next uh, of the next generation. If ninety five percent of those plants are a six or a five, it doesn't really matter if five of those plants are a nine and a half or a ninety five, right? They, they've if we found some plants that are better than the one that we started with, you can kind of say, oh well, it was worth it going through all that garbage to have to find these ones that were even better. Now, if we're selling that seed lot to the customers or to customers at a finished project as a finished product they're going to be pissed off that only 5% of the plants are suitable and are actually like better performing than the plant that we got them from. Right. And so that's kind of where we fall back into that discussion about like, is selling S1 seeds a finished product or is it a service to the community? Right. Like, you know, I also didn't want to create the impression that that's what Caleb is doing is just pumping out S ones for money. Like he makes S ones as he's doing other steps and breeding projects. And if you follow his Instagram where he, where he shows his work, you can very clearly see that making pollen in the, you know, 
making let's again i'll use like the og example again that legend og if he's making legend og s1 seeds he creates pollen from that s1 that legend s1 or that treated s1 that treated legends plant at the same time as he fertilizes that plant the same the legend he also fertilizes a bunch of other things that are part of his breeding projects right and those seeds don't necessarily get sold for seed and so in a way the community is remunerating caleb for doing that work and creating the s1s and sharing them throughout the, the global gene pool and that function of making s1 seeds kind of pays for a little bit of the r d costs for him to move along his breeding program right because breeding is you know it's not like if you're growing if you're growing weed to make money you're pumping out crop after crop of clones. You're getting like a high dollar value for your your crop. When you're taking that same space and dedicating to breeding, and like we just said in this example, you end up with ninety five percent of the plants are are below par. You're not really using the making the best use or the best financial use of that like crop footprint, right? You'd be making more money if you were growing clones, but because you're doing this work as a breeder you kind of, in a sense, waste your space or you don't optimize your space in the hopes that something better is going to come forward. And so I really do find, I, I feel that, you know, making these S1s in the market that he has access to all these things, all, all these popular plants is really like quite a service to the community. I really like this description of, of you know, these seeds that are an intermediary step that he uses as a breeder on his way to his own crosses. And so he's sharing his intermediate step. It reminds me a lot of, I grew up, grew up in a family of professional carpenters and they would often have tools that did really cool things in woodworking that a friend had made a friend designed and woodworked a tool for woodworking and then would like sell it to like friends at the bar or whatever, you know? And so this, this pool of people around that particular woodworker would have this tool that the craftsman made to make their craft better. And in a lot of ways, that feels like what Caleb's S1s are is like, hey, here are here's this tool I made to make my crosses, and I'm not going to hoard it. I love to keep it out there. And so I'm going to offer this tool into the community um, as well. Um, so taking us into commercial, Caleb, we're talking about you right in front of you. Um, um, uh, does this, does this, um, ring true to you at all? Is, is, are you picking up what we're putting down or, or are your motivations actually like, you know, different and we're actually missing it? Oh no, you're, you're pretty accurate on them. I mean, um, uh, <laughs> I pretty much put everything I make right back into breeding and, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> a lot of the stuff I do makes zero dollars and costs a lot. So, yeah, <laughs> it definitely rings true. Right on. All right, so let's go ahead and take um, our first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guests today are Caleb Inspecta and Ryan Lee. And, um, you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard about them on Shaping Fire. 
As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. One of the challenges with buying autoflower seeds is that often you'll have as many different phenos as you will have seeds in a pack. That can be fun, sure, but so many varieties in one pack is a sign of an immature seed line that hasn't been worked enough. 
I prefer my autoflowers to be worked enough that each pheno in the pack really captures the aspects that the breeder was intending. This is why I recommend Gnome Automatics to my friends and listeners who grow automatic flowering cannabis seeds. Gnome Automatics seeds are not just crossed and released. They are painstakingly sifted again and again, tested in a wide range of conditions, and taken to a level of maturity that each plant will be recognizable by its traits. Traits that were hard-earned, so that you can have your best growth cycle ever. Gnome Automatics became a trusted and loved brand in cannabis over the last 10 years as Mandalorian Genetics, and recently changed their name to Gnome Automatics. The only thing that has changed is the name. Founder Dan Jimmy continues to pour his passion of breeding cannabis into every variety he releases for you to grow. Check out the Gnome Automatics Instagram at gnome underscore automatics to see the impressive plants folks are growing. You can score Gnome Automatic Seeds in Feminized or Regular at your favorite seed provider listed in the vendor section of their website. Farms interested in bulk seeds of more than a 1,000 should reach out through the website, too. While on the website, be sure to check out the Gnome Automatics shirts and other merch section. If you want reliable seeds, hand-built from effort, expert selection, and experience, choose Gnome Automatics. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shengolos, and my guests today are Ryan Lee and Caleb Inspecta. So, you know, this second set is all about the attributes of these S1 seeds. We, we touched on it a bit during set one, but, you know, the goal is to dig into it much more now. And, and during the break, um, you know, I, I, Ryan and I were talking about whether or not he makes S1s because I was under the assumption that he didn't, but he's like, oh no, I make S1s. And so that's where we're actually going to start. So, um, so Ryan, you know, I've, ne- I've never heard, I've never seen any of your S1s, but now that we've talked about during the first set about how making S1s doesn't necessarily need to be a like commercial retail project that making S1s is often a intermediary step when breeding um like making your own tools as an artisan this kind of brings it puts it in a new light so so I'll just kind of like ask you that question generally and and let you hit it um do you make S1s as part of your breeding projects and and what's your personal use for them yeah i've to me it's really become a crucial part of a, of breeding projects because it wait for many reasons but for one reason it really allows you to get a look at the gene or interactions within the plant um and you can understand how those genes in that one plant are inherited you know do we see the the do we like for example if we're looking at the scent of a plant if we have a, a plant that we've isolated from a population and it's special we we create a self-population from it and then we can look at that self-population and say hey did that very interesting scent profile from the parent reappear in the population and if it appears in the entire population that's kind of the best case scenario it's not often the way that it works but if if all of the plants for example show a given trait show that trait it's reproduced then we know that that trait is what we call true breeding or homozygous in in the population or in in that in that parental plant and in the population that was created from that plant. And so what that tells us is that 
when if we want to cross that population or any plant from that population to an unrelated gene pool or an unrelated plant, we know that the gene responsible for the smell is going to go along for the cross, right? And so it's kind of like, you can think of it like playing cards, like, you know, you, those playing cards that people collect for baseball cards or, or, or hockey cards or whatever. It has all the statistics of the plant, right? And so you can kind of think of like the first generation when we identify the plant, that's kind of like getting the picture at the top of the playing card, but without any of the information, like the, the details or the statistics of that player. Right. And so when we, when we do the self generation and we start growing out the offspring and taking notes about the different individuals in that offspring, we can learn a whole lot about the, the individual plant that was self. For example, we can, we can understand about the cannabinoid ratio, you know, uh, is, is this plant a pure THC plant? I mean, like we can kind of stay in that pure THC category category. Cause I think that's where most of the listeners are coming from. But even within a plant that is pure THC, it can produce low, intermediate, or high levels of cannabinoids, right? And you might have like a plant that is like a 23, 24% plant that has one copy of the high cannabinoid production genes and one intermediate copy of the, of the sorry, one copy of the intermediate cannabinoid production genes. And so, you know, just by selfing the generation we can start to learn about the different genes that are within the individual that we've selected from our population. Right. And so when we talk about preservation, if I'm growing a new, let's just use the land race example, because that's an easy one for people to get. I get some seeds from Thailand. I grow at a hundred. I find a very special individual or sorry. The first thing I'll do is I'm growing, if I'm growing a hundred plants, You'll throw away the obvious dogs, the plants that are just terrible for whatever set of reasons. Um, I don't like to do that chemically in the first generation of a wild population because those dog or weird plants that are kind of ugly and underperforming, they may have rare cannabinoid genes in them. And so if we're looking for a rare gene, just that one trait enough is, is enough to select the individual. Right. But typically when you're growing the family, you will let all the plants breed together. And that's your first true, I call it like raw um, gene capture or gene preservation, because you're trying to essentially capture everything that was, that exists within the population that you have. The second step is selection where we actually go through that population and we look at the female plants and we start selecting those plants based on any given set of traits. One type of breeding that you can do is take that selected female individual that has all the, the open pollinated seeds from all the different um, fertilizers or the different pollen donors in that population. And so it's like half selected. It's, ha it's selected by the female, but it's really unselected by the pollen donors that hit it. If that female plant has a really special trait that we want to examine, you don't want any of those other pollen contributors in the mix and so in that case you you take that individual plant and you do create s1 seed from that plant and now you've preserved not the entire genes of the entire population but you've preserved the the genetic recombination of the of the genetic history of that one specific plant 
right? Um, so I see those things as, you know, th that's kind of the, the two ranges of any breeding project, with selfing being the most inbreeding step. But again, if you found a very rare, unusual plant that doesn't resemble anything else in the population, you don't really want to cross it back to anything else in the population because there's a, a pretty good chance that you're going to lose that trait in this in subsequent generations. And the only way to really keep it pure or to ensure that you're crossing that plant with another plant that has the same trait is to breed it, like I said before, breed it with itself. And that really allows you to examine the heterozygosity or the homozygosity of that one specific plant. Um, now, Caleb, you had something about homozygosity and heterozygosity that you really wanted to talk about um, with regard to S1s. So I don't know if that's a good opportunity now. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, I was just curious uh, what your opinions are on uh, utilizing uh, S1s and then further generations like S2s in um, making lines that are much more uh, is the correct term homozygous homozygous. Yeah. So I think probably the best thing to do is I'll make a diagram that we could put up on, um, on Instagram when this episode airs, but essentially <laughs> people, it's going to be hard for some people that don't understand what a Punnett square is, but we're, we're going to introduce the concept of a Punnett square and a Punnett square is a way of, symbolically looking at the hypothetical chromosomes of an individual plant um or sorry in in the genetic combinations that come when crossing two individual plants and what what the result what you'll be able to see in the diagram that i show is that when we when we mate one plant to itself any trait that is heterozygous which means okay we all you all have to remember, every person that is listening to this chromosome, you have 23 sets of chromosomes. One set of chromosome you inherited from your mother, and one set you inherited from your father. And so, for any trait, eye color, height, hair color, um, blood type, one piece of the genetic information was inherited from your mother, and one piece of the genetic information was inherited from your father. Those two pieces of genetic information on opposite chromosome for any trait, they can either be the same or they can be different. And so if you have blue eyes, for example, you have two copies of the same blue-eyed gene on each chromosome. If you have brown eyes, you could either have two copies of the brown-eyed trait or you could have one copy of the brown-eyed trait. And so in the, in the cannabis plant world, selfing a plant and and looking at the ratio of just one given trait in the offspring tells us whether our parental plant was homozygous or heterozygous. If the plant, for example, let's go back to our pink pistol plant. In our well, pink pistol plant maybe is not a great one. Well, we'll use it anyway. So if you use a if you use a pink pistol plant and we self that plant, if all of the offspring from that self cross have pink pistols, we can say that the trait responsible for the pink pistols in the parent was homozygous. In other words, the parent had two copies 
of that pink pistoled gene. Okay. And so if we had another, um, I guess we'd use the pink pistols plants again. And another example, if we had a pink pistol plant and we crossed it to itself and in the offspring, only 50% of the offspring had that pink pistol trait, we would know that that parental plant has more than one um, set of chromosomes. Because in the offspring, we would say, we would see, say, three individuals with pink pistols and one individual with call it purple pistols. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by looking at, at self populations, we can essentially examine the degree of heterozygosity of a plant. Now, one thing that we know, and I'll, I'll show this in the diagram that we post is that every generation of selfing produces 25% greater homozygosity, which means we're increasing the inbreeding at every generation by 25%, and we're actually purging 25% of the genetic variation if we only look at one individual going down that S1, S2, S3 line. Mm -hmm. So if what you were saying, Caleb, you might have a plant, you know, and that that legend OG plant might be a good example. The the original plant has has linalool in the... um, in the flavor profile, if you self legend one in, I think it's one in three come back with the desired scent profile. Mm -hmm. And then if you, if you breed that, if you select that individual plant and breed it again, you can actually get to a condition where you have all the plants have the desired scent profile. And that's because we've removed through inbreeding the the heterozygosity at that one specific genetic um, mm-hmm. spot on the chromosome, which is what we call a genetic locus. So, um, yeah, like serially in lines, we can start inbreeding very heavily for specific traits. The problem is when we do that with cannabis, um, which is also an obligate outcrosser like humans are, we kind of run into this problem that the royal families around the world have run into through <laughs> through inbreeding is that that while sure you're keeping the blood blue and pure you're and and in, in our case we might actually be selecting for things that we like there's always in plant breeding there's always this concept of like the genetic neighbors of the trait that we like they come along for the ride and if those genetic neighbors are like below average or like negative traits, then we can actually be doing um, genetic damage to the population as a whole. And that's why we keep, you know, when we go, when we get down to say S1 at S1, you won't just look at, you know, say, say we grow a hundred S1 seeds and we find five plants that are special. Usually what I'll do is I'll take the best plant. Well, depending on the project, I'll take the best plant and I'll fertilize itself. I'll do a set F1 seed out of the best plant, but I'll also take that pollen and I'll uh, fertilize the, sis- the, si- the siblings, the sisters, right? And if I have the time and the space or the, the, the project is really important, I'll actually self all those individual sisters as well. And so now from S1 down to S3, we don't just follow one, the, the, the population from one individual 
will follow populations from each of the individuals. <coughs> Always looking to make sure that the traits that are important to us come along for the ride. But we're also going to see that some of those families that we've created have bad traits, and we want to throw those ones away. Right? It's just a factor of inbreeding. When you when we start inbreeding, you have we have problems. So we have to take you know precautionary measures. Right. Right. Do you have a follow-up on that, um, Caleb, or should I move on? Um, no, I, I think I, I, I think I agree, um, especially with uh, like uh, um, breeding into the S two S three populations to you know really lock down those certain traits. Um, you don't, I don't think you ever get uh, like a finished product um because they get so inbred that you know just because you've locked down the traits you want you you don't get a whole lot of a of a, a, a excellent growing plant the the vigor goes down exponentially it seems with each self degeneration yeah and that's that's absolutely the case right that, that's and the more. same royal trouble right yep it is, but but it's it's also important. It's an important step that we have to get to because, you know, again, if we, let's go back fifty years and look what happened when we started getting cannabis from all over the world. People in California and elsewhere, but California was kind of the hot spot because you could grow a lot of these different things. You know, one year you'd get some lumbo from Colombia and you'd grow that out and it would be awesome, and that would you'd, you'd start growing that. Right, and then next year somebody would show up with some Thai bud, and you'd keep some seeds of that, and you'd be like, "Okay, well, let's cross the Thai into the Colombian and see what happens," and on and on and on, right? And so over generations and generations, we had all these relatively pure populations that were geographically isolated all around the world, and then they came to California for this like big kind of shuffle. Right. And now we're in this like phase where we've really raised the level of quality from back then, but we're still stuck in the shuffle. Right. And so it, we need to get to, to really move to that next level of breeding where, where you have lines, you know, when they, when this happened with corn and they started really not domesticating corn, but really like call it industrializing and getting like the academic institutions all over the world involved in, you know, producing bigger, better, badder corn so that we can feed the world. They went through this same thing. Like they grow out all these families from all over the world and you'd start inbreeding them because you want to keep your breeding populations pure. And some of them would start having these bad, like, you know, deleterious traits would show up, negative traits would show up. And you kind of like, it's kind of one of those things where like the only way out is through, right? Like sometimes you inbreed and you inbreed and the line goes to crap, but sometimes you can actually inbreed it and you can remove the crap. And all of a sudden you've got a line that's true breeding and it's actually really quite good. Um, because, you know, we, we also have to, to remember cannabis as an obligate outcrosser. One of the things about that obligate outcrossing um, mating system that cannabis and humans have is that we never really get rid of genetic variation, right? So as long as everybody around the world, I'm talking humans is breeding and having kids, we don't have like, if you look at the human population as a whole, we don't have like 
one true breeding type, but we have all these different variations existing all over the world, all these different versions of genes. And as long as the humans keep breeding, those things never go away. Right. Whereas the, the opposite is true for inbreeding species. When we take a human population or say we take like a hundred human populations and we start inbreeding them, which is, you know, ethical and unthinkable in our society. But, you know, from a purely academic point of view, if we were to start to mating and inbreeding families, what would happen is all these bad traits would show up, like all this stuff that these genetic weaknesses, disease and all this sorts of stuff would show up. But theoretically, if we did those inbreedings in large enough populations, we'd find genetic individuals from those populations that didn't have any of the, the bad alleles, like just because of their genetic lottery and, and, and their genetic history, they only ended up with the good genes and not the bad genes. If you then take those individuals and cross them together, now you've got a population that is highly inbred, but has, has gotten rid of all the, the crap. Right. Mm-hmm. And so corn went through this uh, 150 years ago or a hundred years ago, but more, more like 150 years ago when they really started developing it. And it, it, like I said, the only way out is through, you have to weed your way through all the crap and inbreed and accept that you're going to get all this junk. But the idea is to brush away the junk and in between in the mix is like the diamonds are there, right? So we blow all the dust and the crap of the way, then we've got the diamonds. And when we start crossing the diamonds together, now we've got diamonds reproducing, right? And so we're a long way from there with cannabis, but that is theoretically one of the ways to get through this is where we take all of these diverse populations with all this heterozygosity that we've built into them, one by cannabis's breeding strategy, but also two, the way that we've been crossing Colombian to Thai to Afghani to white widow to OG to sour diesel, right? Like it's always crossing in the next new thing. Nobody's really stopping and saying, okay, let's not introduce new stuff. Let's go down and and find these individual things. And, you know, in the last 15 years, we're starting to see this. And, and, you know, the the freak show guys, uh, high grade mutants. I mean, they're, they're one example of this where they said, Hey, we're not going to go outcrossing we're going to inbreed and they inbreeded based based on one leaf morphology but they created something totally new right that's a whole new kind of variety i call it a variety because it, it reproduces from seed it the, the trait reproduces when true from seed and in a way dj short did the same thing you know back 15 20 or 25 years ago with blueberry that he kind of said he kind of said i'm not going to outcross i'm only going to inbreed in my little pool you know, and arguably what came out is like a little bit on, it, it suffers from inbreeding depression, but it's a great line to use for hybridizing, right? Because he's fixed the purple traits and he's fixed a couple of other things in the, you know, in the stems and the leaves. And um, that's kind of what you have to do in plant breeding is you have to go, you have to force your way through the heterozygosity to develop homozygous true breeding lines and that's what you're doing, Caleb, by going down S2, S3, S4. Right. Once you get to that point in time, though, the question becomes, you know, what do you have? You've essentially got like an heirloom variety that's probably kind of inbred, and it's not going to be as good as your hybrid variety. Right. As a performance, you know, when I say as good, I mean it's not going to perform as well. 
it's not what you're going to put on the market and the customers are going to come to want to buy to plant fields. Right. Right. They're going to want something with more vigor and, and size to it. But once it's true breeding like that, now you have a real tool that you can use to test cross against your different lines that have also gone through that same kind of measure. And once you start crossing those things back together, you're going to see again that real true hybrid vigor that the people in the 60s and 70s were seeing and they, when they would cross Colombian to tie, right? right? Because you've got two true breeding indiv- or, or lines that are distinct. And when they come together, now you've got like a real F1 seed, um, right, right. which arguably doesn't really exist in today's cannabis seed market. So. Not too often. No. <laughs> so, Ryan, um, <clears throat> in, in one of your examples where you've got all of these inbred humans and, and then one group are developing all these great traits and then this other group are devi- <clears throat> um, developing all these negative traits, I swear to God that sounds like a premise for a new Marvel movie, right? Because all of the, all of the great traits become like the superhero and all of the negative traits become like the villain and then boom, now we've just got two hours of sci-fi. So, um, uh, so Caleb, you know, we know that you make S ones that you share with all of us as part of your own breeding projects. And we understand better now how, um, how creating S ones, um, helps lock down particular traits for the breeder to work with when you are making these S ones for your bigger, um, breeding project, do you find that um, you make multiple S1s of of different, I guess I'll say phenos of a plant so that you can say, okay, I've S1'd this one because I like the structure. I've S1'd this one because um, I, I prefer the, the terpene profile. I've done this one because it finishes early. And then now that I've got this pool of S1s, now I'm going to breed these, hoping to capture the best of all of them oh yeah definitely um one of my more uh recent ones i've been working on is uh the purple urkels so you know i I grew out over a hundred of them and i made you know i don't know um give or take a dozen selections maybe more um for different traits you know i never i never try to you know select just for one thing so you know on one i selected for like the, you know, the orange chocolatey terpenes and on another, I selected for just, you know, the, the big purple flowers, and you know, so it wasn't all for just one trait. And then for the, you know, the sister, sister, I guess, uh, generation, um, I don't even specifically know what to call those if they're S twos or, or what would you call those, uh, where you breed a S1 with its S1 sister, Ryan? What's it's the correct a, it's, So it's a, it would be a sib cross. Mm-hmm. It would be, you might denote it like S1, F2. Yeah, or, that's what I was kind of thinking. It's just, it, yeah. It, I mean, when we're labeling those things, it's really like the important thing is to give a code that you know, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. And, it, and it means something to you. And then I think the only other real important thing about naming plants, or at least the generations, is to convey the, that information to somebody else so that they can understand 
mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. the genetic condition might be in those seeds. When I get seeds, I kind of like to know how homozygous or heterozygous they are. Um, can I just jump in on one quick point that, like, I'm kind of along the line that you're talking about, um, Shango? You asked if you if you if you self different individuals from an S1 seed. One reason you might do that, for example, I'll give you an example. When we were back when we were breeding THC and CBD ratios, you know, say the original plant is a one to one THC to CBD. When you cross that plant to itself, we end up with a population that is like roughly a one to two to one ratio of THC plants. So you call it 25% THC plants, 50% CBD and THC plants, and then 25% CBD plants, right? So in order to prove to yourself, and this is kind of an obvious thing, but, you know, it, it applies to other traits other than just cannabinoid ratios. In order to prove to yourself the inheritance pattern of those traits, what you would do is self one of the THC plants. You'd again self one of the one to one, and then you'd self one of the CBD plants, right? And you'd see when you self the THC plant, they all have THC. When you self the CBD plant, they all have CBD. When you self the one to one, you get that twenty five percent to 50% to 25% ratio of THC to one-to-one to CBD. And, and so, like, it's, you know, for example, say you, say we got a, in the purple generations that, that Caleb is talking about, he's working with some purple crosses, and he crosses, uh, he, he has a, a special plant, and it's purple highlights, and, you know, he thinks it's really interesting scent, and I'm going to make an S1 out of the seeds he grows the s1 seeds 25 percent of the plants are completely purple 50 percent of the plants look like the mother and then 25 percent of the plants are completely green right well if you're trying to understand and prove to yourself what happened you'd self one of each archetype and then see what happens in the next generation Right. And, and what that tells you is like, okay, you know, if, if, if we learn that, that the purple plants breed true and the green plants breed true, but when we cross them together, we get purple with, or green with purple stripes, you know, now we understand the building blocks that we have to have in order to put back the, the final product, which is, you know, if we want it to be green with purple stripes. Right. And so sometimes it has nothing to do with moving a project forward other than trying to understand how does this trait inherit, right? Um, so there's one really good example or one use of, a, of how to use an S1 generation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right. So let, let's take this in a, in a different direction now. So, so far we've been talking about um, um, using S1 to um, capture a particular trait because, and we want to use it, um, in, in, in a larger breeding project. Um, but I know there's a lot of folks like me who, who pick up S1 seeds, not because I'm planning on breeding it, but because I'm attracted to looking at the variations within a genome. Um, for example, two summers ago, um, I popped several packs of um, 
Caleb's Skittles S1 um, because I like the original Skittles strain, but I'd also like to see you know what else is in there that was not the you know the championship cut. What what else is in there? And so I ran a whole bunch of these these Skittles S1s, and it was an absolute delight, you know, to see this variety. You know, subtle differences in colors, a lot of differences in terpene profiles, um, some differences in inner node length. Um, I don't know. They, they, it's like different. You know, it's just like going to a party. You know, and 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 that's that's a bad example. But anyway, it, it's just it was it's just cool to see a lot of different riffs on this same plant that I really like. And so um, my my question to you, Caleb, and and then um, I've got a follow up. Probably going to go to you, Ryan. Is when you are now that you've made so many S <clears> ones. <throat> Uh, like let let's say that they're that, that I'm going to pop a thousand seeds, right? Which would be freaking awesome, but not something I'm probably likely to do. Um, how the, the idea is so that we can capture as much of the genome representation as possible. How many different expressions would you expect to see? Um, like, are, are you seeing that when you? when you visualize all air quotes, all the different expressions that are captured in that seed that you're all like, Oh, there's, there's usually like, you know, 10 different varieties at the same time. You could say there, there might be a thousand different varieties or maybe 800 different varieties because we know that the genetic picture is very complex. And if the S1 is supposed to capture that picture, then, then if we pop a whole bunch of S1 seeds, we might see that same genome expressed a lot of different ways. So, so how I kind of expect this answer to go is I, I like to find out what you normally see from your experience since you're on the front lines doing this, uh, Caleb. And then, and then Ryan, I'd love you for you to address this idea that, um, that S1s are an actual snapshot of what can be expressed in the genome. So this is kind of, uh, similar to a question I get a lot. Um, people ask, um, how many phenotypes are you going to see with these S1s? Well, that's a really tough question <laughs> because say if I'm running out a hundred and something, uh, Urkel S1s or a hundred and something Mendo purple S1s, you know, both of those lines or both of those cuts S1, they, the plants look very, very similar. Like in veg, you know, there's not a huge amount of difference. Um, but when you get into flower, you know, the plants still look the same, but there's all these different flower types and coloration patterns and, and, uh, terpene profiles. I mean, that's where the huge segregation is, you know, with the Mendo purple as an example, especially, um, so it, I mean, they all look, you know, plant wise, like the same phenotype or genotype or whatever, but you know, it, it's, it's those, you know, those terpenes and the, and the flower, you know, structures and colors that are the real variables on there. So I personally, I don't even know how to, you know, quantify how many phenotypes and different, you know, individuals there are, um, 
you know, that, that's kind of always been a tough question for me, you know? Yeah, it's kind of a flawed question, I think, even. And I think it, it comes because people don't really understand the word Phoenix. Did you lean away, right. did you lean away from your microphone, um, Ryan? Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I sat back. I turned up the gain a little bit. Um, it's kind of a flawed question because people don't understand what the word phenotype means. I think, right. you know, so for example, let's have an example. Um, you know, Oh, you, you're growing cookies cross chem and you've got the cookies phenotype because it's got those little rounded leaves. Right. So anytime you see those little rounded leaves, people will look at it and say, Oh, that's the cookies phenotype. Mm-hmm. Well, it might only be that it only has the rounded leaves from the cookies, but every other trait looks like the chem. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, you know, it's like, imagine if we're going to start categorizing actors and we say, Oh yeah, Tom Cruise, he's got like brown hair. And then, and then all of a sudden anybody that you see that has the brown hair, you start calling the Tom Cruise phenotype. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what we do in the cannabis world. And it, nothing could be further from the truth right. because as we know, anybody that has brown hair doesn't mean that you're Tom or doesn't mean that just because you have brown hair, you're Tom Cruise, right? Like mm-hmm. that should be self-evident. But for some reason in the cannabis world, we tend to think that, oh, if you have this one trait from that one genetic background, the assumption is like the entire plant must have all the other traits that also come with that genetic background. That's not how genetics work, right? Mm-hmm. One of Mendel's laws, which is Mendel is kind of like the grandfather of, of inheritance, Gregor Mendel, people can look him up, the, the few that haven't heard of him. But one of his laws of inheritance was independent assortment of traits. And that, so that means like if you have blue eyes and brown hair and you, you mate with someone that has blonde hair and green eyes, the hair color and the eye color in the offspring aren't going to be related to each other. Like just because you have brown hair, it doesn't mean that you're going to have blue eyes, right? Just because you have blonde hair, it doesn't mean you're going to have green eyes. Like you can have the reverse combination of blonde hair and blue eyes or green eyes and brown hair. Right. And so when we start looking at like phenotype based on one trait, you're really going to go down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Um, to wrap that back to what you were talking about, Shango, and like how many phenotypes exist, phenotype is really is usually in reference to one trait, right? So, like if we're talking about, you know, you were talking about like internode length, for example. So, like you know, there's going to be three internode length types within a population say short internode length intermediate internode length and long internode length right but all those long internode lengths some might smell like cookies some like smell like pine some like smell like grapefruit some might smell like you know tropical hawaii kind of mango scent but if we categorize them all by saying oh those are the those are the long internode plants that's not a really helpful way to sort or categorize them. So I grok that, but let me, let me slightly course correct my question. I am, I am less curious about um, categorizing what I think of as a phenotype and more 
interest in categorizing the different plant expressions I will see over a thousand seeds. So if I pop a thousand of these S1 seeds in my head as a not not incredibly scientific knowledgeable person, um, I would think, oh, I want to pop all of these seeds so that I can see all of the possible expressions of the Skittles from my example. And I don't know if every one of those expressions would be considered a pheno or not. More to the point, like, let's say I pop a thousand seeds and, and first one has, is a very flowery, short plant, um, dark green color. Second one is um, uh, got a different smell profile. It happens to be a very tall plant, but it's got the same color. The third one has got a totally different color, but this one oddly smells a little more chemy, um, and it's got this like odd um, pink pistol, right? So, so if if each plant in the these thousand S one seeds. Um, are a different mix and match of the potential in the genome. I'm simply curious how many seeds I would have to pop to see everything that the gene could do. Okay, it's that's it's a very complicated question. Although it sounds simple, it's actually a very complicated it was very question. easy for me to say. I don't know how. I- <laughs> well, no, and, and there is an answer, but we have to kind of work through it a little bit. Okay, All and right. so I'm gonna if if we may, I'd like to start with it by saying, don't use the word phenotype or how many phenotypes what I see, and instead substitute the word individual. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that really changes the concept, right? Because phenotypes are a grouping. Because I am thinking about individual. That's more what I'm thinking in my head. Right. And it's, it's, it's more appropriate because genetically, they are individual genotypes. So you could refer to every plant as a genotype because the genetic type of that individual is unique from all the other individuals in the population. Okay, and so that's why I like the word individual, because it really kind of hammers home that we're not talking about like when you use words like strain or phenotype, it kind of says all these plants are the same. Right. But the point that I think we're really asking or we're trying to hit home is that, hey, all these plants are are individual, individually and unique. They're different from each other. Right. And that's the important part. Now. The question is, how many will we see in a population? Remember, S1 is a technique, not a product. Okay, and so if we look at it from that lens, how different and how many individuals any given S1 population are going to have, how many different, you know, air quote, phenotypes or visually chemically distinguishable individuals is going to be related to how true breeding the plant that we used to it to inbreed and create the S1 generation. Mm. So our Colombian cross Thai, I'm going to switch it up. Let's call it Thai crossed Afghani because those two plants are like visually less similar than Colombian and Thai, right? The Afghani is real stocky, small, wide leaves. The Thai is the polar opposite, tall, thin leaves, very different flower structure. If we cross those two plants together or together, we hunt 
call it a thousand seeds, we find the super individual from that hybrid between the two. And then we self that individual. The S1 generation from that individual is going to be a spectrum of plants from the Afghani all the way to the Thai and every possible combination in between. Okay. And so that is an example where we selfed or we've created a segregating generation of an F1 hybrid. Separately, if we took that individual Afghani plant that we crossed to the Thai, and instead of crossing it to the Thai, we uh, create a reversed male version of that clone using hormones, we self-fertilize it and create an S1 generation from that Afghani plant, and then we grow it a thousand of those. Those plants are going to look more or less the same as the Afghani mother. Okay, And that's because that Afghani plant was a true breeding plant. And so you can see... Same process. We 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 did we made S ones from two individual plants, but we had very different outcomes, and those outcomes were directly related to the degree of heterozygosity or genetic or genetic diversity that existed in the plant that we selfed. So, <clears throat> what it comes down to, <clears throat> excuse me, what it comes down to is the number of individuals in that S one population really just depends on how true breeding the the plant is that I S1 and so if if that if that original parent the solo parent um you know it was a very well worked line and it's and it tends to you know breed truish um there'll be a lot less variety but if there's a whole bunch of stuff that went into it and it's never been refined well then there's going to be a whole hell of a lot to sift through bingo and there's one other measure measure that people in the community might have come across it's not going to be everybody that's going to know this but back during the phylos days and some of the other genetic company testing uh, companies that are doing genetic testing they would provide you with a number essentially was how true breeding is your plant or what's the level of homozygosity or heterozygosity. The more heterozygosity that that num- that that test would show on a plant would equate to the more types of individuals you will see if that plant is um, inbred and, and, and had self seeds made from that one plant. Right. And so when we cross two plants together, we're talking about, I mean, you said before, you know, we're talking about someone's genome. We all have to remember, Shango, you've got two genomes. I have two genomes. Caleb has two genomes. We all think of it as Shango's genome, Caleb's genome, Ryan's genome. But really, we have two different genomes. One genome that we inherited from the mother and one genome that we inherited from dad. And any trait for which those two genetic um, chromosomes are the same from mom and dad the plant or the person will breed true. Any sections of the chromosomes where those chromosomes are different between the parents, in cannabis, if we self those, that's where those traits are where we'd see all the variation. Mm-hmm. And really, the the degree of genetic similarity between the two mated individuals, or the, I guess we'd call them grandparents at this time, because we're you know our individual is an S or is a the individual that we're selfing is creating the grandchildren's, the, the grandchildren generation. What we're looking at is the 
chromosomes that were inherited from grandmother and grandfather, right? So yeah, it's uh, there's no e- there's no easy answers. Yeah, there, right, right on. Like it's it, it really is like <laughs> quite a complex answer, and it, and it just begs further questions. You know, how, how varied is the S one going to be? Well, how true breeding is the plant that we're um, is that we're using to create the S one generation? It's really answering a question with a question, which is never satisfying. Right on. All right. So let's, let's bring this second set, uh, to a close. Now I've got, I got something to say here before the break. So, so if you are the kind of person that absolutely geeked out and loved the deep science that we've just hit over the last 40 minutes and you wish Ryan would just keep talking in this same way, Boy, do I have an episode for you. Um, go on back to Shaping Fire episode 64 on female-only breeding. And um, it is Ryan providing these sorts of uh, insights for two hours. And, you know, I got to tell you, much of it was over my head. And I'm I'm not... Um, I don't have a problem saying that because like, you know, the dude's hardcore. Um, but he just kind of took the ball and ran with it. And so if you love this, definitely go back to episode 64. You will enjoy the hell of it. Now, um, when we come, if, if, if this kind of science is just kind of like on the edge of what your interest level is, stay around for set three because, um, next set is, is going to be a kind of a different approach. Um, we're going to start off with Caleb walking us through what he does in his garden to actually breed these S1s. And so it's going to be a little bit more um, hands-on Caleb taking us through what he actually does in case you want to, in case you're now in totally intrigued by S1s and uh, you want to, you know, you know, try your hand at it. So, so we're going to go ahead and take our last short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire and my guests today are Caleb Inspecta and Ryan Lee. Once you've discovered the benefits of using cannabis, it's a very small step to start making your own edibles, gummies, lotions, tinctures, and concentrated oils at home. Magical Butter has been helping cannabis consumers become self-sufficient for over a decade. With the easy-to-use Magical Butter Countertop Botanical Extractor, you can create high-quality cannabis products to your exact specifications at a fraction of the cost of store-bought edibles. I talk a lot on this show about the importance of home growing so you don't have to rely on others to feel healthy. Well, the magical butter machine can empower your personal health by putting you in control of how you use cannabis in your daily life. I've been making my own butters and oils on the stove for years, and I much prefer the ease of using the magical butter machine. I just set it and walk away. With the simple touch of a button, the Magical Butter Machine grinds, heats, stirs, and steeps your herbal extract all at the correct time interval and temperature for the perfect infusion every time. As a result, you achieve your desired infusion easily, safely, and consistently. Check out the Magical Butter Instagram to see the machine in action. And don't feel like you have to go it alone. There is a huge community on Facebook called Magical Butter Users United, sharing recipes and best practices so you can learn at your own pace from others who are already doing it successfully. Now is the time to get your own Magical Butter machine and save money while enjoying cannabis. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, to get 10% off. Visit MagicalButter.com today. 
There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, Fast Buds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hembra cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit HembraGenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. A fully functioning greenhouse grows extraordinary cannabis flowers that have exceptional bag appeal, great terpene profiles, and exceptional yield. But as we have discussed many times on Shaping Fire, a greenhouse is only as good as the environment you create for the plants inside. Biotherm has been on the forefront of developing and installing highly efficient greenhouse solutions since 1980. Whether new construction, major upgrades, or a retrofit, Biotherm's cultivation climate solutions are tailored to each grower's specifications. They even have root zone heating mats that attach to a home hot water heater for growing areas 500 square feet or smaller. The atmosphere of the growing environment directly affects the health and productivity of your crop. Biotherm offers heating, cooling, dehumidification, and CO2 enrichment to optimize the air your plants breathe and optimize plant growth by enhancing the elements within the cultivation space. Biotherm's dissolved oxygen irrigation solutions will improve the vitality of your water and the efficiency of your hydro delivery system. When you implement Biotherm's systemic innovation, you'll experience increased yields, improved plant vigor, and increased resistance to disease and pests. Biotherm offers free phone and email support for everything they sell and will help you troubleshoot and diagnose issues to get your equipment back online. The explosion of greenhouse cultivation has crowded the field with novice consultants selling unproven gadgets. When you choose Biotherm to regulate your greenhouse environment, you know you're relying on their over 40 years of experience designing, installing, and supporting mission-critical greenhouse technology. Your plants deserve nothing less than Biotherm. Visit BiothermSolutions.com today to learn more and request a quote.
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and my guests today are Ryan Lee and Caleb Inspecta. All right, guys, let's bring this on home. So during the first set, we talked about uh, S1s and like what they are, both from a scientific perspective and also from a usability and, and what we're doing with them in the cannabis community direction. And then in the second set, um, we dug in deeply to S1 attributes and what we will see in the genome. This set three will be a little bit shorter, I expect, because we are going to be focusing on the actual making of S1s, which, you know, is absolutely a skill, but is not quite as lengthy as, as some of the other things that we may do in cannabis. And so, Caleb, you know, since you are the guy who does this more than anybody I know, um, I would appreciate it if you would take us through um, a step-by-step like tutorial on how you produce S1s in your garden. And, and as, as, as far as like level of um, detail, you know, certainly um, we have got a whole bunch of, of OGs who are listening, um, who are going to be familiar with everything that you're saying, but also recognize that we've got a whole bunch of new breeders here. And so, um, so you know, go, go through it in a little more detail than you would if you were just sitting around with Ryan having this conversation, all right? <laughs> right so, right. Um, so, all right, cool. With that said, uh, here, I'll hand you the mic and uh, walk us through it, would you? So a handful of years ago, I, I I never really thought about how long it took a full run of S ones. Um, but somebody asked, you know, Hey, can you make me, you know, this S one? And, you know, um, so I basically broke it down for myself and, you know, them of course. And I realized that it takes about six months from start to finish to make one full S1 run. Basically, uh, you pick your, pick your uh, you know, mother plants when you want an S1, and then you got to get your stock up, uh, veg them out, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't work on a small scale. My smallest uh, reversal room is 3K, and most of them are 4K to 6K. And... Anyways, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm filling uh, uh, up a good what size. Is, what, what does that mean, dude? I don't, do you, do you mean like, like 3,000 plants? No, 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 no. I don't no, know no. what 3K means. It, like, like, it's probably my novice, but like, what does that mean? Uh, 3,000 to 6,000 watts. Oh, watts. You know? Okay. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So three, <laughs> three to 6,000 watt lights, you know, per row. Anyways, uh, so basically, uh, you know. Uh, veg time, I usually give my plants about two months veg. Um, then, um, then, uh, um, I'm also using eight to 12, uh, five gallon plants that are, you know, usually about two foot by two foot as the, you know, the reversal plants. Um, and, um, I, I also, uh, um, do different, uh, um, different, uh, variations on what I spray on them because, uh, in my experience, not all plants reverse the same. Some plants do early, some plants do late, um, as far as pollen drop. So there's a, there's a good bit of variation on that. Um, 
and then uh um uh i don't know did i lose did i lose you there shango no no i'm listening i'm just i'm just you've got the floor that's all okay okay um so uh you know some some plants uh you know they'll drop pollen as early as like week three others will drop pollen you know week six um so i basically have to spray some plants you know two weeks before um you know the the rest of them and others you know um right at, right at the trigger of the the regular garden um for folks who but aren't for, for folks who aren't um, as familiar with the spraying process, what is it that you are spraying, and where where do you what, what do you like to use? Um, I generally use EXE. Um, I also use uh, STS based products. Um, you know, um, but generally uh, lately, it's it's been EXE from Hybertech. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know. The results are still variable. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of plants um, don't don't reverse with just one spray. Whether you're using EXE or STS, um, so you know I always make sure I I spray uh, two times to at least half the plants I reverse. Um, but uh, um, usually the the garden's fully pollinated about four to five weeks into reversing the room which is anywhere from four uh four to seven weeks after the the reverse reversal plants are sprayed um and then the total time the rooms take is generally 11 to 14 weeks uh you know from start to finish as far as producing the seeds because i generally try to give them six to eight weeks, uh, for the seeds to ripen. Um, and then, uh, um, and then of course the drying process, uh, you know, generally, generally takes a couple few weeks as well. And, uh, the grinding, uh, grinding of the flowers and the separating and the blowing of the seeds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it takes a good six months to, produce just one run of uh, S1 and, you know, feminized hybrid seed. How, <clears throat> how many different rooms are you generally working on at the same time? Because, like, you know, you, you drop these S1s pretty regularly. I, I uh, for the last couple of years, I've had seven rooms um, that I, I'm working constantly. Um, so I'm, I, I harvest these rooms one day and I replant them the next day. Um, so it's, it's pretty much constant. Um, I'm actually trying, I'm, I'm working on, uh, slimming it down a bit, uh, because yeah, I've, I've just been nonstop in the garden <laughs> for way too long. So for any listeners who are like unfamiliar with using these, the STS spray on, um, on plants to, to cause them to, um, um, self pollinate, I encourage you to go back to both shaping fire episode 49 uh, that Caleb was on before all about, um, feminized seeds and making them. And then also we hit it up again last time Ryan was on the show. Um, actually not the last time, but an earlier time, which is episode 64 on female breeding. 
So we're not going to go into it too much heavier today, but but if you're if you want to get more nerdy about um, spraying the plants, um, that's where you can find out more. So <clears throat> so Caleb, it sounds to me listening to you uh, <clears throat> describe the process that the keys to making S ones falls in um, number one understanding the recipe and making sure that you do each step in order and properly. Right. And then second, the, the part that has the most bearing on the seeds is actually the choices that you make and plants before you even start. Right. Right. And I mean, uh, the way I do things, it's not perfect. Uh, just because when I do a run, um, I don't, most of the time I don't have backups. So if something doesn't produce pollen, um, or, you know, doesn't reverse properly, I pretty much lose, lose that full run. Um, and, uh, a, a lot of times, uh, reversals aren't consistent. Um, you know, I, I, I generally spray eight to 12, you know, these, you know, good sized plants every time. And, uh, a lot of times you'll have one or two plants that dump pollen real good and you'll have some that just dump a little and some that don't dump at all. So if somebody's going in and thinking they're going to reverse X, Y, or Z and they only have one plant, well, it might reverse or it might not at all. You know, um, that's why I try to hedge my bets and, you know, uh, s spray a good amount of them. And, you know, give them, you know, a handful of different, uh, you know, multiple springs, uh, and then, you know, different times when they're introduced, you know, into the, uh, uh, you know, into their, into the their 12 cycle and so sprayed. So you'll, you'll stagger plants mm -hmm. uh, for yeah. pollen production being introduced over times. And yeah. you also buy how much they get sprayed as well. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll generally, uh, um, put, put in, uh, I'll, I'll generally try to reverse plants two weeks before the main room. Um, and, and then one week before the main room and then the day of the main room. Uh, right. And then I'll also the day of the main room, I'll do a second spray, um, on about half of the plants from each, each, you know, gotcha. Yeah. It's kind of a shotgun approach. So you're all like, okay, I don't know the particular best practice for this individual plant. And right. so um, I'm going to spread out my window for when I spray and then I'm going mm -hmm. to spread out my volume for how much I spray. Right. Cause you know, I've, I've had, you know, runs where the, the pollen <laughs> drops before you even have any flowers. And then I've had yeah. runs where hell the plants are practically ripening up. And they're not going to make any seed uh, because yeah. the pollen drops so late. Like uh, OG Kushes tend to lean towards that 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 end of the spectrum, where the other side, like Trainwreck and uh, Mendo Purple, you know, they tend to drop the pollen real early. So you know, you don't even have flowers to pollinate. It's like <laughs> slow down.
Yeah. Uh, I imagine that there isn't one, but it's worth asking. When you are looking for candidates that you are going to reverse, have you determined that there's any kind of a signal or a sign which plants are going to be more successful reversing than others? Or is it is it something that's hidden in the genes for you and you just can't tell by looking or seeing how they act? Uh, I mean, I I haven't seen any type of a sign uh, yeah, yeah. That would be awfully and, convenient, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, like, like uh, for example, um, uh, sour diesel. Most people who've tried to reverse that, you know, have, you know, most people don't succeed. Um, even though that, you know, sour diesel in general, you know, it'll it'll hermaphrodite pretty good. You know, uh, no questions asked. But uh, I don't think the pollen is too viable most of that time. So, uh, you know, uh, look, looking for plants that herm isn't necessarily a, a good sign for, you know, plants that will reverse successfully, you know, kind of a little tangent there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, as far as, um, like what the, so, so you, you, you do different timings of when you spray and different volumes of when you spray, mm-hmm. if there was a center of that target, um, where you would recommend that most people start, like mm-hmm. meaning where in the process, where in the, in the life cycle and, and how much spray, what would you say would be like the center of that target for somebody who's trying to do this for the first time? In general, uh, reversing your plants two weeks before is probably the best bet. And then two weeks before they start to flower. Uh, no, two weeks. You, you reverse. Uh, you you spray your plant and you you f- start flowering it two weeks before you uh, you know flower the target plant or the target room. Got, oh, got it. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, the best one generally for me is when I when I spray. You know, two weeks before, and then also when I flip the room, I spray it again usually with like a half strength dose so as not to, you know, hurt the plants too much, but just to kind of make sure, you know, the, the ethylene is, uh, you know, um, you know, kept, kept down or whatever. What do you mean by hurt the plants? Uh, a lot of times when you use, uh, well, EXE, for example, uh, it, it'll it'll cook your plants up pretty good, and it'll. Do you mean like um, put them on pause? Like um, when you say cook them up, do you mean like you're actually seeing like chemical burns on the outside oh, of the plant? Oh yeah, oh yeah, chemical burns. Uh, wow. Um, kind of just crinkled up, just you know, twisted up foliage. Uh, you know. I've never actually pictured this as being such a rough, um, rough process on the plant, but I'm actually getting a really different picture now. It can be, it sounds like it can, can be traumatic with some individual plants. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, do you find that the, when you're doing this, that the, uh, the seeds take any longer to form or to set or, you know, for people who have just, you know, pollen chucked before they kind of general have an, I have an idea how long this takes. Um, once the, once the reversing process is completed, is the seed ripening and removal process? Is that all the same as we'd see with like just regular photo plants? 
Yeah, it's pretty standard. Uh, you know, I generally let them go six to eight weeks, um, six on the minimum. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty standard, um, as far as just whether it's S ones feminized, uh, or, or regular runs. So, so I guess I want to name check a bunch of stuff too, um, mm-hmm. Caleb, cause, um, you know, you have reversed so many and you've already made some like kind of jokes about plants that are easier or harder to reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, will you just kind of like, you know, go through your head and, and tell us a handful of the plants that you find that are, are easier to reverse and some that are harder, um, for people who are looking to attempt this, that might kind of inform their decision about wh- right. what they want to try. Yeah. Um, lemon party was very easy. Uh, chem, chem dog number one was very easy. Uh, stuff like, um, basically those ones, the easy ones, uh, you know, those almost are like having a male in your room where you just put them in front of the fan and the fan blows the pollen all over the room. Those are more of the rare, rare exceptions. Um, some of the harder ones would be like triangle kush. Um, Irene Skittles um, being extreme examples where you basically have to kind of collect the pollen individually and just manually pollinate everything in the room. Um, so yeah, those, those ones definitely take a lot of work comparatively. Um, and I don't know. Uh, I, there's definitely been some anomalies like, you know, uh, for example, with Irene, you know, uh, um, I pollinated, uh, you know, uh, the better part of a, a full light, um, of Irene, maybe it was just half a light. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I put, you know, a good amount of pollen on that and I got 20 seeds, you know, um, but then there was, uh, you know, a row of triangle cush right next to him in the other bed, you know, under the other light and there was like 750 seeds from just, you know, the excess of pollen that I'd blown on the Irene. So it was almost like the Irene didn't take its own pollen or something. Whereas the, you know, the hybrids with the TK actually, you know, produced seed with that same exact pollen. Um, so there's all kinds of different variables and uh it sounds like what we want need to pass on to anybody doing this for the first time is <clears throat> if you run into challenges and obstacles, take it easy on yourself because <laughs> this is this sounds like this is this is not just point and shoot. This sounds like there yeah. is a lot of um hassle and needed experience and hell luck. Right. Um and also, you know, uh uh, there's a good handful of plants that, you know, uh, they'll revert back to just normal flower, especially if you only spray them one time. Um, but even sometimes when you spray them twice, it just won't reverse. Well, um, others will reverse a hundred percent and then they won't, they won't have any pollen at all in them. You know, um, it, it's, it's really inconsistent. It, it's not just, like you say, point and shoot. It's it, it's tricky sometimes. Right on. So, so um, to kind <clears> of <throat> wrap wrap up our discussion for today, um, 
Uh, Ryan, I want to I want to get something very specific from you that you said during our our last time when we talked about female breeding. We've already, you know, as far as like the t- the two things that are most often said about um, about S ones, um, uh, the the the. The first one being like, oh, S1s are clones of of the parent plant. And we have very effectively dispelled that during today's show. Um, The second thing, though, is because S1s are female seeds, you get a lot of people saying, um, you know, incorrectly calling it herming, you know, that that all these 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 feminized seeds herm would you share your thoughts on the expectation that fem seeds will throw male flowers because you've got a you've got a very strident and scientifically based opinion on the likelihood for for feminized seeds to throw male flowers or or show intersex traits and so so please drop that on us yeah well again i think a lot of these expectations come from you know, where we've come from in the cannabis community over the last 30 years, when I'm going to use air quotes around the word feminized, when feminized seeds were first introduced to the cannabis industry, and I should probably state that that no other industry uses air quote, you know, feminized seeds. This is really a marketing thing that has been done directed at that cannabis consumers. Um, when they were first introduced to the market, the way that they were made, I would say, I, in my, it's my opinion, that the way that they were made led to an increased level of intersexuality in the offspring. And so I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call them true S1s um, that were made using a chemical inhibitor or a chemical hormone inhibitor, which is what what we've been talking about today. There's other ways to do the same thing by using plants that are already intersex. And because we have this thing in plant breeding, all breeding, really, we say like begets like, and that just means that plants or animals with given traits are more, the offspring from those animals or plants are more likely to also have those traits. And so if we're, if we're using parents that have some degree of intersex um, expression or, you know, what the cannabis community calls hermaphroditism, it's also likely that the offspring from those plants will have some level of, in, of intersexuality or hermaphroditism. And so I think that what, what we're, what we've seen in the past is that some methods of creating feminized seeds do lead to more intersex plants. The methods that we're talking about here, again, will only amplify the traits that any given plant have. So if we use plants that are not, likely to be intersex as the parents it's more likely that the offspring will also be free from intersex and that's not always the case right i think we're learning through the process of more people making female female crosses with many more plants in the cannabis gene pool that we're starting to learn that yeah some plants for example will have strange occurrences with the sexual expression of of in the offspring right and so i I have an example of that i have a sour diesel cross you know um caleb was mentioning sour diesel earlier and the problems with using it as a a reversal plant i actually used it as a target plant in a female female cross so it received pollen from a hazy like plant that i use 
Um, and a small percentage, I'd say probably six out of 150 plants, so maybe four in 100, um, come up looking like male plants. They're genetically female, but they look phenotypically as if they were males. Um, and that doesn't always happen. Like, it, it, you know, sour diesel cross to other things doesn't do that. So whether it's like, and, and the, the pollen donor plant is also not known to do that. I have selfed plants of that, that expression, that genetic individual, and it doesn't produce any intersex offspring at all. So it's something to do with those two plants coming together. And there's a genetic phenomenon called complementation that happens. And uh, it's usually where there's two genes that are required for a specific interaction to happen. And one plant might have one of those genes not showing the interaction. Another plant might also not show that genetic weirdness, but have the other gene. And when those two plants are crossed together, a certain subset of the plants do show the weird genetic condition. So it could be an example of that. But we're definitely learning that, I think, like Caleb was saying, you know, not every plant reverses and, and produces pollen in the same way. I think that we're also going to learn in cannabis that there's going to be different levels of expectation of whether those plants are going to be, will produce intersexuality in the offspring. And those are really things that we need to do as breeders to test cross and ensure that the plants we use don't end up like that, right? Or don't end up contributing within but, all this within all this variability it sounds like the the rule of thumb to folks especially folks who don't have the same scientific depth you're coming from is um you know don't don't blame your intersex characteristics on on selfing or feminization itself blame the intersexing on traits that appear in the parent plants and be sure you've got quality genetics that you start with yeah and even if they're not you know i mean quality or not is really subjective right yeah, and yeah, that's true. so we might have a plant that has like it's incredible in all other uh, all other characteristics but it has a little bit of intersexuality and and through selfing that plant it's like i talked about earlier the only way out is through it might be the case where we cross um, a plant with some slight intersexuality and we hunt through the feet, the, the offspring, and we realize that we find plants in the offspring that don't actually have that trait. Remember, like every generation of self ring reduces genetic variability by 25%. Mm. So we might be able to, through that genuction, that reduction of genetic variability, we might actually re re remove the negative traits, in this case, intersexuality that we're trying to do away with. And so selfing might be a way to advance removing intersexuality through very tight selection for, you know, strict femaleness and, and test crossing those, those selected individuals. Right. So again, selfing is a technique. We can't blame the result on the technique. We have to understand that the result is a combination of well, it's, the result really has to do with the genetic heritage buried in that offspring that we selfed. But the technique of selfing is just a tool, right? And I think that we've we have we have in the past made people have made some conclusions that blamed the tool rather than understanding that the tool was only revealing what was there. 
That's that's the sound bite I was looking for, dude. Thank you. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what there I was, finally. Yeah, that's exactly what I was <laughs> looking for. So, all right, let's wrap this up, fellas. So, um, so first of all, um, thank you to you, Ryan, for uh, for for joining me on Shaping Fire again. It is always uh, delightful to have you on the show. Um, to have you both, you know, share your humor and charm and like the deep scientific understanding that you have um, that that we enjoy cutting through the bro science so thank you to you and then also thank you as well to you caleb your depth of experience and knowledge of these cultivars that we love so much and and your you know the fact that you have been doing this for so long um means that you're able to share with us uh you know experiences that we that we're just not going to be able to you know probably earn in our own lifetimes and so um you know we can all we can all lean on your experience so thanks to both you fellas for joining me today on shaping fire thank you for, Thanks having, for having us, us. Awesome. All right. So um, if you all want to follow up more with uh, Caleb Inspecta from CSI Humboldt, um, I recommend these three places. Um, first of all, I highly recommend that you go back to Shaping Fire episode 49 on feminization and and, and uh, making feminized seeds. Um, it's it's a good show and it gets into um, a bit more of the of the details than we did today. And then, um, and then of course, you're going to want to buy some of Caleb's seeds. Um, and you know, he's got, he's got a whole, he's got a whole bunch of things, right? We talked about S1s today, but if you go to his website, humboldtcsi.com, um, you'll find S1s there. You'll find, you know, regular seeds. You'll find female, uh, feminized seeds that are not S1s. Like he's, he's got a whole bunch of stuff. And, and also, um, you know, if you're, if you're a heady kind of, a breeder or collector of seeds, you will also find uh, mixed in with the rest of his seeds, um, his, I, I dare call sub-label or associated level, um, uh, um, uh, pirates of the golden triangle. Is that right, Caleb? Emerald Triangle. But yeah, that's it. Um, Pirates of the Emerald <laughs> Triangle, and where he releases um, some har- like much harder to find breeding cherry things. Um, for example, I've got his uh, his Pine Tar Kush IBL that's on, in that line, and I am presently growing his um, 79 Christmas Bud uh, from that line. So there's a whole bunch of great stuff there. And then finally on Instagram, you're definitely going to want to follow Caleb at CSI underscore Humboldt to both keep up on releases, of course, but there's a lot of teaching that goes on there. And one of the things that I like about um, Caleb's IG is that even though he's got like, you know, 220,000 followers, um, it is not a free for all of trolling. It's really nice. Like the people on his IG um, generally are there because they're interested in breeding and there's a lot of like community and helping each other. So, and we, we all know we'd like more of that. So, so anyway, make sure you check out that. Now, for Ryan Lee, also known as Chimera, uh, historically, especially on the, on the, you know, the old forums and stuff, um, I recommend that you check out, uh, any of the, uh, episodes that Ryan has done with me on, on, on tissue culturing and other topics. But, but, sp- like, re- regarding today's work, um, today's topic, you'll want to look at episode 64, which is all about female seeds and breeding with, uh, uh, females only. 
that's great. And and like if you were in the second set, you definitely want to check out this episode. And then Ryan's Instagram is at breeding cannabis. And, um, you know, while he does do some Instagram, um, it is, it is often, uh, easier to connect with him, um, on his Twitter actually, which is at Chimera Genetics. And Chimera is C-H-I-M-E-R-A Genetics. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.